Uh, my name is Margo, and I am the associate pastor here, also called the Werelove Pastor. Uh, not like werewolf, but uh, what, it, what that means is that uh, I'm in charge of helping people get connected and serving in the community and here at Eastlake. And I think that's great because our community needs people to love on them. And so what a better job than to connect people to that. But if you're first time here, uh, welcome. We're so glad that you came to check this out. If you're waiting for a movie to start, uh, sorry, but at least you got free coffee out of it. <laughs> we're a church for people that typically aren't into church, and we like it that way. Uh, we're in the series right now on week two called Who Is This Man? And the whole series is just trying to help us to get in a better state of mind and focus on Easter because Easter always sneaks up on us, especially when it's really early, which it feels like it is this year. So uh, if you guys want to hear if anything I'm saying just seems like a part two, because it is, feel free to go back to eastlaketricities.com slash talks. And there you can hear previous weeks or any of the other stuff on there. It's great if you want to check it out or if you know you're going to be out of town. Next week or week after, you can find those talks up there. So, who is this man? Uh, we're talking about Jesus, the figure of Jesus. And we understand here at Eastlake, there's all kinds of people on the spectrum when it comes to church. Uh, we know that there's people that are just like, yeah, like I've grown up with this. This is totally a big part of my life. And other people are like, I don't really know how I feel about religion or the, the person that is Jesus. I've just seen like the weirdly Aryan guy that has something against mustaches, like on my in-laws dining room. And I'm not really sure what he's about. So we thought it'd be great to take some time to slow down and to look at who he presents himself to be, what he says, how he acts, because that paints a pretty good picture, and that helps people figure out uh, kind of the journey that they want to pursue when it comes to that. It's kind of like when you know you're going to go on a date with someone, you want to check them out first, and we have this beautiful technology for stalking called Facebook. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was the primary purpose uh, when they designed it, but it's great, right? Because you can check something out. You can see, all right, am I going to like this person? Am I going to get along with them by looking on their profile? Because you can see uh, things that they say, uh, things that they like, things that they don't like, and you can get a feel. Uh, you can get an even better feel by the pictures, I'd say, though, right? <laughs> Sometimes you're like, ah. I don't think it's going to work out because you're posting some interesting things. Uh, my friend, she's in the online dating world, and she sent me a screenshot the other day because this is what you do when you online date, right? Uh, she sent me a screenshot of this guy's profile, and I don't think he was putting his best foot forward because the only picture on his profile was a blurry shot of his license. <sighs> like, I, there's so many questions because who actually has a good license picture? And it's like, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. Now she knows my birthday and where I live and can, you know, run my record to see how many DUIs I've had. And maybe actually he was just trying to help her out. But uh, I know for me, when I was uh, in the online dating world and looking at profiles, there were things that for me were immediate no. And that's, it's not because they were bad, it just, I wasn't, like, I knew that our interests didn't line up. And one of those things was, immediate no for me, is if I was looking at a guy's profile and he had one of those gym pictures, the one where, like, the phone is, like, at hip height, and he's, like, holding a big weight that's just for the picture, let's be, let's be real. And you're just like, you know what, like, I just know, not, nothing's wrong with working out, but I know that that's not going to be someone I'm going to be compatible with because I don't like working out. It might be shocking, but that's not the world that I live in and operate in. So I just knew, or if he had like a Yankees hat on, I knew that would be like a no-go. For a lot of people here, 49ers gear, they'd be like, not touching that with a, you know. So 
We, we can tell a lot about people by how they present themselves. And uh, the sports, the, the gym thing made me think of sports. And I'm like, I was trying to trace back, like, why am I not a gym person? Like, going to the gym is healthy. And I was like, I realize I'm not really even a sports person. I've never been good at sports. And I can trace it back to the schoolyard, right? Has anyone been there? And you're lined up and they're picking teams, and you're just like, I just don't want to be picked last, <laughs> like anything but last. And the di- like, if you ever get picked in like the top five, you're like, I am the king of the world, and I can do the Olympics because I was picked relatively quickly. But I feel like if you were one of those kids that was picked last or close to the end, you just, it sets you up for a lifetime of like not feeling great about sports and not really wanting to participate. And that was me. The only sport I ever played uh, was in college, because you know, why start earlier? And I played college women's rugby. Uh, because they had no audition process. So they didn't know (laughs) that I was a horrible runner. And everyone's saying, well, that's a really intense sport. Why don't they have like some sort of process? And I'm like, if you are willing to get muddy and to be around a bunch of ladies that don't like men and get kicked in the face with a metal cleat a couple times, they're like, great, like you're in. That is the audition process. If you make it past the first game and you're sticking around, you're on the team, like you're, you're in this. So uh, I, I just never was into sports. I leaned towards like the music and the theater kind of side of things. My poor dad, I have an older sister that was the, like literally the head cheerleader in high school. All he wanted was a boy, and instead he got like a second grader with a bowl cut, and that was like the the best he could do. So um, music, I did get to do a lot of cool things through music and theater. I think one of the coolest things I got to do was two years ago now, I got to sing the national anthem at a Pittsburgh Pirates uh, baseball game. They were playing the Cubs, which was cool because the Cubs won that year. But uh, it was really nerve-wracking, and it's as hard as they say with the echo. But the nice thing was, afterwards, they actually put you up in one of those fancy suites to watch the rest of the game. So I'm like, awesome. I'm excelling at singing. I can skip the whole sports athletic side and go straight to eating food and watching sports, watching other people be athletic. So I'm like, you can't get that wrong. So I'm sitting on this ledge. And I have a giant plate of nachos with like, not the squeezed cheese, but like the good stuff out of a can, of course. And then the pulled pork. And I'm just like watching other people be athletic and saying like, I can do this. I'm really good at eating food and watching other people play sports. This is great. And then I encountered a problem because uh, if you've ever attended a game at the PNC Park in Pittsburgh, it's right on the rivers, so the wind is really, really strong. So if you're sitting on a balcony with your plate of food, innocently trying to know what's actually going on in the baseball game, and a gust of wind comes, you may find yourself in the situation I was, which was your plate being lifted and then falling and falling onto the seats below. (laughs) Pulled pork and nacho cheese everywhere. (laughs) It probably didn't help that I was representing a charitable organization at this game and had their branding all over my shirt, so I was like, oh no. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I just leaned back and watched the game like this for the rest of It was awful. And I realized I am so not athletic that I can't even watch sports without my inner cluts coming out. And if you were at that game, I am so sorry. It was an accident. It was not malicious. Uh, but it really, it's, can be really hard to not judge yourself or your value based on your skills or other things that the world would say are valuable. It's really hard, especially in the age of social media where we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. Wow, they got that scholarship. Wow, they got that promotion that was able to buy them that boat. They are great at Pinterest. The Pinterest moms, I feel like, just make everyone, all the real people feel awful. What's the saying? Like, you're either a Pinterest mom or an Amazon Prime mom. Like, not a mom, but I'm totally would be the Amazon Prime part of that equation. But it's really easy to say, like, hey, I don't have as much value as the person next to me because they're so much better at A, B, C, D, E. And it's... It can be a challenge to break free of that. And we see that actually, we think it's pretty bad now, but we've come leaps and bounds from where we were as a society, as human beings living on this planet, spinning through outer space. We've come leaps and bounds in the last 2,000 years than we ever did in the years preceding that. And why is that so? Why has there been so much positive change in human rights and things like that recently? And we, we like to, to trace it back to the teachings of Jesus. And now this is hard. If you're not into church, you're like, all right, this is a religious thing. I'm saying, no, we've all, humanity as a whole, religious or irreligious, have benefited from what Jesus taught. Because what he taught was that people had value. And because he taught that, and because his followers taught that, and they went into every corner of the earth that message that people have value, follow that, and we as a society, even if you want nothing to do with the religion, you can't say that you haven't benefited from that. Because uh, two of the people, we talked a little bit in previous weeks about how women have benefited from Jesus saying, hey, they have value, hey, they have a voice in this, hey, I want them to be part of making the world a better place. Uh, and then one of the things that I saw in my research is that children gained a tremendous amount of value through Jesus's ministry. And that's really hard for us as a modern society to say, what do you mean kids didn't have value? Because it's such a normal thing that we don't, we, it's, you can't even imagine a world where they didn't have the rights that they have now. But things like a child... Uh, having access to be able to learn how to read, literacy. Literacy is a relatively, if you look at the entire timeline of human existence, literacy for children, hey, kids should be reading, they should be learning, is a super new thing. It is just a, a blurb on the map. Um, other things uh, that, that showed me that children have gained in values, if you look at common practices that were going on around the time that Jesus had his ministry, would seem shocking today. One of them would be uh, this, this practice that's called exposure, which is really awful, and it still continued. It was still something that was hard to stamp out of people even after Je Jesus' ministry. But it was this process of when you had a child, you had a couple weeks, a leeway period to decide if you wanted to keep it or not. And reasons for not keeping a child would either be you have like too many, you can't support them. Oftentimes it was female children because a female would cost you as a parent because you had to pay to get her married and you had to pay the husband to take her off your hands essentially. Uh, then also children that had 
disabilities or that were ill or anything like that, these children would be seen as disposable, which is horrible to think about. Horrible to think that this was not only legal, but socially acceptable. It would be something you'd overhear at a coffee shop saying like, hey, I thought you were expecting. They'd be like, yeah, it didn't work out. We, we went with the exposure route, and people would be like, oh, this is, this is fine, this is normal. So what would happen is these parents would take the child and place them on what essentially was a dump heap. They'd take them to the edges of town and leave them out there to, to fend for themselves, and all, we all know that that didn't work out well. This was legal, legal and accepted and normal in this society. So how do you shake people of that? How do you convince them of that? We see that... Time and time again in Jesus' ministry, he's including children. Instead of saying, hey, go play outside while, you know, mommy and daddy have this important meeting, he was saying, bring them to the meeting. Have them sit on my lap while we discuss what God's love is like and all these things. So Jesus changed, changed people's view about the value of children. And that's something that we obviously see the benefit of today, the protections of today. We can't even think of a world that would be so dismissive of a child's value. But that's a benefit that we as a society has gained. In fact, if you look at the words in uh, ancient Greek and Latin for child, the word translated to not speaking. So even when you're saying, oh, I have that thing that's following me around that what they, the word they would use was not speaking because a child had no voice in that society. Children had no autonomy, no voice, no immediate value, right? If they grew up to be a man that could provide, great. If not, then they were just a burden. And yet we see that so much has changed from then to now because if we look at some famous words that I hope every history teacher in here is perking up to hear, maybe you can follow after. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So what happened between ancient times and Thomas Jefferson? And you can think, well, there were just, people just got smarter. People just, you know, smartened up and realized that we should, you know, that people have rights and people have value. But if you look at some of the smartest minds, even today, if you look, oh, these are some of the smartest minds in history. If you look at Plato and Socrates, these are people that were proponents for things such as the exposure rule. In fact, even when it came to slavery, uh, Socrates was saying that, well, slavery is just a part of society because when you're born, some people are just worth less than others. And these are people that are still honored today as being brilliant minds, and yet they still had it wrong when it came to value. And we know even since this was written, uh, humanity has still pressed for, for human rights. We've still grown even from this statement that all men actually cr like includes all races, all religions, men being mankind, including women. We've still progressed, and it started with the ministry and the example that Jesus set. So I love that this, this part uh, of this document because it says self-evident. Self-evident meaning obvious. It is obvious, these truths. These truths are obvious that everyone was created equal. 
So it's so hard to think that there was a time when it wasn't obvious. And this was the time period that Jesus was walking in. Uh, a, a modern day historian, Nicholas Wolsteroff, he's a, he has a PhD in philosophy from Harvard, a smart guy. Uh, he was studying the progress of humanity and trends. And he said across the entire uh, scope of what we know of humankind, he'd say that people tend to be tribal. That is inside good, outside bad. If you are in my circle, you're safe. And if you're outside my circle, you are not safe. You're not entitled to the rights and privileges of my inner circle. So if we are naturally at our core tribal people, people that want to exclude others and just protect the few, what shook that from us? What changed that natural tendency in humankind that gave everyone rights and value instead of just the insiders? So this, this um, philosopher, Wollstoff, had only one logical conclusion. He's like, there's only one place I can trace back where this changed, what shook us from it. And he said that the teaching of the scriptures, which is the Bible, clarified and made available to all the world through Jesus that every human being is made in the image of God and loved by God. This is what shook us of that tribal tendency that people were spreading this message that, hey, you're made in God's image, you have value, no one's an outsider, everyone's an insider. This is what shook humanity off that course of uh, only valuing the, the few. And Martin Luther King Jr., which I'm sure you've heard of, continues this thought, and he says, while there are gradations of talent, strength, intelligence, and beauty, that is like levels, you can be more beautiful, less beautiful, more intelligent, less intelligent, there is no gradation of the image of God, saying you're 100% and that's it. We're all the same in that. So where do, we see, where do we see this when we open to the account of what Jesus did and what Jesus taught? Uh, in the Gospels, uh, we see that Jesus has many one-on-one -on -one encounters from letting the children into his inner circle uh, to him heading towards people that in so many ways society would not head towards. And this is kind of draws our attention to the second group of people I want to focus on, which are people that are disabled or differently abled, where society would step away from them or ignore them or pass over them. We see it so many times in Jesus's life and example that he headed towards these people, intentionally headed towards these people. In fact, of the 35 recorded extraordinary things that he did that were written down in the gospels, 25 of the 35 had to do with him encountering and going towards someone that was disabled, be it in the mind or the body. 25 of the, or 25 of the 35 times. See, God didn't ignore those that were differently abled. He went toward them. And this was completely, completely against how humanity operated in that day. In fact, one of my favorite stories of this was uh, Jesus was teaching some things that were controversial because it was kind of anti the current church establishment. And they got angry and they were actually chasing after him to stone him to death, to take his life from him. So if this was an action movie, that this would be that car chase, right? Where he's like, the car goes off the ramp and there's explosions in the background and he's like skidding around the corners. And it's the, it's the great action pattern to get away. And yet in the middle, he pauses escaping for his life and says, hey, 
look at that blind guy over there. And the disciples are like, oh, what? Like, I thought we need to get away. Like, don't we have better things to do? So even in the midst of his own personal issues, he still stopped and noticed and went towards people that were differently abled and in a horrible part of society. Because back then, if you were disabled, you couldn't have a job. Because you couldn't have a job, you were never going to get married because no one would want to incorporate their family into yours. You weren't allowed to actually know much about religious texts because that was safe for the educated and the the well-off. There were so many things that were barred from this person's life. And Jesus went towards that instead of away from it. And we, one of my favorite things that we see as an example, or as a result of the example that he set, was this letter that was written. The church started after Jesus' death, and they're just trying to self-replicate, being like, all right, we need to be like Jesus. How do we need to treat people? How do we need to operate? And one of the letters that told them, we need to do this because Jesus did this, was a letter to a church in Corinth. And it talks about relating humanity and the church to a body, a physical body, and about how there was fighting in the church saying, well, I'm more important because I'm good at this, and I'm more important because I'm good at that. And, he's, and the letter says, essentially, you need to cut it out because the body can't say, one part can't say to the other that it's not important or doesn't have a value because every part has value. And the word that he uses a lot when he talks about different parts of the body, which would translate to different types of people, is he said, honor certain parts. And honor is kind of a weird word in modern day society. We don't really use honor that much. We're not really sure what to think of honor. And so the original word that was used in this letter from the Greek is a word that's pronounced doxagso, and it means to impart glory onto something or to render it excellent. Uh, Another translation of it could be to cause the dignity and worth of some person and thing. So to give something value, to impart glory, to render it excellent, to give something a value, to give something this title of being excellent. And to me, it made me immediately think of if you have a child, your children's art. (laughs) Because if you took the scribbles to an art appraiser, they'd be like, this is not a Pollock, this is a preschooler. And uh, as much as you think this is timeless and priceless, this actually isn't worth anything. But the parent may frame it, they may keep it. I mean, we see parents now getting their kids' art tattooed on them. Uh, What your child creates gains value because they created it, because they've touched it, because they've had a part of it. Your kid's baby clothes, or you can't get rid of them, or you got to save them in a little box to look back, and they can give it to their kids. There's things that gain value that don't have value inherently, but that gain value because we've placed it on them. And it really made me think also of if you've lost a loved one or someone you care about, instantly things from the post-it note with their groceries on it to their favorite t-shirt go from having a nominal value to an irreplaceable value. An appraiser would not say that their value has changed, but the love and outpouring of loss and emotion creates a tremendous amount of value in them. And we see, we see this so many times and times again. For me, uh, it was this teddy bear that I loved and I still have. Uh, I only have one. I only have one stuffed animal. I'm trying to be an adult. Uh, his name was Ragger because he looked all raggedy and he's super cute and brown. And he was like the stuffed animal that I took everywhere. And I remember as a kid, you think toys are just magical. And in my head, I'm like, yeah, 
Santa sewed this bear like he was sitting next to the fire and, you know, putting on his little eyeballs. And this bear was precious to me. And of course, when I got older, I start worrying, saying, well, what if Ragger gets lost in a move? Or what if he starts falling apart? I want my kid to have a bear just as great as Ragger. So in my head, I'm like, I need to figure out what little old lady in Vermont made him so I can get a second one just in case, a backup bear. And so I take Ragger out of his little storage box and I look at his tag and it says Walmart. So instantly this bear that had such value to me, so much sentiment, and I'm like, this bear is so special to find out that he came from Walmart and probably from some unethically labored factory in China. Like, it was like all these emotions going through my head. And it hurt, like I did, like it made me feel awful. But to me, this bear was priceless when really he was probably like $5.99 in a bargain bin. And it's, it's crazy how, how easy it is to give value to these things. But it makes sense because if we look at the big picture of history, why we celebrate Easter, is Easter celebrates a loss that results in value. God lost his son, and because of that loss, it imparted value on us. I've gone through this pain, and that is why you're so special to me. See, where we hold on to the items of those that have passed away because of loss gives them value, we celebrate Easter because of what we've gained, not lost. In celebrating a broken relationship being mended, because that's essentially what happened on Easter, if, even if you're irreligious, we can all agree, turn on the news for 10 seconds, this world is dysfunctional. Some of you were like, you were in my car on the way over here. This world is dysfunctional. My family's dysfunctional. We have brokenness. And God looked at the dysfunction and said, hey, I want to restore that. I want to heal that. I want to create a path out of that. And that is why Easter is so special. It's celebrating that accomplishment, celebrating the value that we gained through the loss. And that value says that we are all all of us, priceless to God. Jesus gave us all that doxagso, that Greek word, that honor. He imparted glory on something to render it excellent. So we're actually going to look at that verse now. And I've, I've inserted value because we're a capitalist society. I inserted value in place of honor to see if this makes more sense to you. The eye cannot say to the hand, one person can't say to the other, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less valuable, we treat with special value. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater value to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is given value, Every part rejoices with it. This is why I love Jesus' example, because he flipped the script instead of saying, these people are worth more, these people are worth less. And he said, no, 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 I'm giving value to everyone, especially the parts that you think don't matter. 
especially the people that you think can't contribute, especially the people that you doubt and you just want to pass on the street because they make you uncomfortable. I'm giving them special value. And you can't say that they're not needed and they don't have a part to play in this. And by showing that example, his followers were told, given the imperative that you need to celebrate, to uplift, and to fight for them. Fight for everyone to remind them that they have value. And it reminds me of a story that I saw a few years back. A man and his wife, uh, this is 1962, they had a son, and through the process of labor, it didn't go as well as they had planned. Their son ended up being born with a condition called cerebral palsy, which essentially means that during the labor process or shortly before, uh, the brain was cut off from the oxygen. And because of that, mentally, they are 100% the same as you and me, but usually with their speech and with their body walking and things like that, um, essentially their, their body does not connect with what their brain wants it to do. And there's, it's a really challenging lifestyle. So when they saw that their son was born with this disorder, the doctors, being practical people, encouraged them to saying, hey, this is a long road. How about you just put your son in a home? And that way he'll be, you know, he'll have the care he needs and you guys can live your life uh, without this burden, <laughs> The family's looking at him like a burden. This is my child. He has value. I'm taking him home and giving him as normal of a life as I can imagine. So they took him home, and eventually technology was able to provide their son, uh, Rick, with a computer that enabled him to talk to the outside world for the first time, to finally communicate what was in here, out there. And, and through his communication, he heard that there was a, a charity 5K going on, and he told his dad through the computer, hey, dad, I want to run that. And his dad's looking at his wheelchair, and he's like, all right, well, now we got to think about this. How is this going to look? And the dad could have been resistant. He could have said, well, you know, maybe I don't want you to... to feel weird because you're not able to run and I'll have to push you. And the dad could have made excuses or tried to protect him from the situation. And also he had his own serious health issues. His doctor told him he was actually months away from a heart attack. Uh, so the dad had a lot of choices to make. He could tell his son no, or he could do whatever was possible to make the race happen. And despite being told that a doctor that it probably wasn't the best idea for him, he wasn't in the great shape, the father knew that they had to go on that run and thus changed both of their lives trajectory as we'll see in this video here. Dick is a military man, so he knows a thing or two about commitment. This time he's just months removed from a heart attack. This gift that he gives to his son, or is it the other way around? Either way, it all started when Rick heard about a charity run for a paralyzed athlete. He asked dad, and dad said yes. The gun went off and we went off with all the other runners and everybody thought that Rick and I would just go to the corner and turn around and come back. Well, we didn't, we finished the whole five miles coming in next to last, but not last. And when we got home that night, Rick wrote on his computer, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears. So that was a very powerful message to me that we finally found a sport that Rick could get involved in just like everybody else. Rick 
is my motivator. He inspires me. To me, he's the one out there competing, and I'm just loaning him my arms and my legs so that he can compete. There's just something that gets into me when I'm out there competing with Rick that I can't explain it, and we're able to go faster. And it, it's just an unbelievable feeling. Rick and I love the Ironman Triathlon to be out there competing with the best triathletes in the world, to be accepted to compete along with these triathletes. Just to be out there on that pier with all the other triathletes and then waiting in the water for that cannon to go off, it, it was just so exciting. The feeling coming down the finish line at Leaky Drive, it, it's just an awesome experience. With the crowd there, all the excitement, the noise, and the announcers announcing all that, the adrenaline just gets flowing. I may be disabled, but I live a very fulfilling life. And if someone takes the time to get to know me, they will realize that I am no different than anyone else. Here he is. He graduated from public high school. He's graduated from college. He's out there competing in road races and triathlons. He lives a happier life probably than 95% of the population. Rick would tell you that, uh, you know, if he... If he was physically able to do something, that he'd probably play basketball or football or hockey. But then he always says, no, the first thing he'd do is sit down and have me sit down in his wheelchair and he'd push me. You know, it really makes me feel good that, uh, that you know, he, he appreciates, you know, what I'm trying to do to help him out, and he'd do the same thing for me. Our message is, yes, you can. You can do anything you want to do, as long as you make up your mind, you can do it. I love the Hoyt story. In fact, they actually this year did the Boston Marathon, which I think was pretty fantastic. But uh, the reason that I feel like this story resonates at least with me so deeply is that it shows that where the doctors or maybe society didn't see value, where so many people saw just challenges and burdens, a father's eyes not only saw the value, but were willing to do whatever it took to make that value seen and felt by their child someone that was willing to do whatever it takes to elevate them, to honor them, and to enable them to do so much more than they could by their own capabilities. And that is what Je that's the example that Jesus set in his ministry. He's saying, if we're all made in God's image, if you're all children, if we're all having him as a father, I'm going to do whatever it takes so that you understand that you have value and the person next to you has value and the person next to you has value so that we can all elevate and honor each other and encourage each other on to live life well, loving other people. And I'm so grateful that this, this carpenter from Nazarene came on the scene and changed how society views people because without it this world would be a much sadder place I think see Jesus came to earth as a child 
to understand the plight of the child. He, he came and lived his life going towards those that were differently abled instead of ignoring them or scorning them. Because Jesus entered the scope of history, our value is no longer based on the extent of our ability or skills or knowledge or any other physical manifestation, but rather we are given the utmost value that all children are given by a loving parent. So three kind of questions to think about as, as you go about your week this week is how do I define other people's value? And how do I define my own value? The next question is, am I willing to believe that my value and the value of others is actually in no way based on how close they come to the world's view of per perfection? Their value has nothing to do with what the world says. And how can I follow it in the example set by Jesus to give values to other people that we may overlook? How do I do my best to view people differently, to view the value that they actually do have, no matter their life choices or their predicaments or anything like that? How do I view them the way that he would and see the value they're in? We're going to pray together, and then we'll have some announcements. God, we thank you that you give us value. God, that where we could get discouraged by the things that we can and can't do and by our life circumstances and what people have said about us, God, that we know that that actually has nothing to do to the value that we hold because, God, you, you did whatever it took to restore a relationship with you so that we could live in the freedom of knowing that we have value, we have worth, and everyone alongside us has that same value. God, help us to, to love others better to see them through your eyes, God, and to do better at uh, fighting for the value of those around us. In your name we pray, amen.